right. Well, we have been in a series, the how-tos of human relationships. And uh, I have just been taking them, as I told you. Um, Pastor Jonathan Watson was kind to me and gave me a lot of uh, his, some of his best sermons, he said. And this one was one that he said was just not a real deep dive into the scriptures. But it was more of a, a social dynamics for Christians, if you will. You know, the things that we take for granted that, that, are, that are difficult in relationships, things that we, we, uh, we may fail at all the time, but we don't give it a lot of significance. And uh, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, are you signaling me? Oh, I'm sorry. The kids. Yes, uh, the kids from Miss Pat. I thought I said kids from Miss Pat's class can go back. I thought I said that. All right, well, since we got off, got off track a little bit here. So I, this lady was sitting in church, this older lady, and, and the pastor started preaching on, on forgiveness. And so he asked everybody in the, in the church, uh, how many of you are willing to forgive your enemies? And about half the church raised their hands. And so he went into about 20 more minutes. It's supposed to be closing, but he was hitting them hard. And then he asked again, how many are willing to forgive their enemies? About 80% raised their hand. And he wasn't satisfied with that, so he just kept going, and he just hammered another 20 minutes worth, keeping everybody there. And finally, how many are willing to forgive their enemies? And all but one lady in the back, Miss Smith. And he said, Miss Smith, are you not willing to forgive your enemies? He said, I don't have any. He said, how old are you? I'm 93 years old. Will you come on up here and you, you t talk to these folks and tell them how you lived in 93 and not have an enemy, any enemies in the world. And she said, well, that's easy. I outlived them. <laughs> All right. So now, now let's get back on track. Okay. The how-tos of human relationships, how to deal with your enemies. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, starting verse 38, that's where we'll begin this evening. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. You know, modern Christianity, and as, as I was saying, this, this uh, Pastor Jonathan was kind enough to let me, um, <clears throat> let me use some of his uh, sermons that he said were some of his best, but he said this really is more of a social dynamics for Christians, but even more so in this modern day, modern Christians as a whole across this U.S., it seems that don't want to use the word enemies anymore. It's kind of a psychoanalytic field that has tried to eliminate words like enemy. But each one of us, 
tonight have people who love us, people who like us, people who are indifferent to us. It's, they're neutral. They neither like us or dislike us. We have people who dislike us. We have people who hate us. Each one of us probably have a spectrum of people. Now, there are times there are people who I've known that it doesn't seem like they have an enemy in the world. And that might be the case for a few, but for most, that's not true. And here's another thing. The more committed you are to any cause, pick anything, anything in the world, any cause you want, and you will likely have people as strongly committed to the opposite of your cause. In fact, have you ever just known uh, someone where you could say anything and they're going to start arguing with you on the opposite, right? It's almost like they, they are going to automatically have an opposite view of you. So in a practical world, how does the Bible teach us to relate to those people who hate us, who spitefully use us or, or make themselves our enemies? Well, first, we must seek discernment from God about who is truly an enemy. You first have to define who your enemy is. Because sometimes we're not even correct on that, uh, that definition of who is an enemy. There are people who will disagree with us, but they are not our enemies. There are people who will argue with us, but that does not make them our enemies. Just because we stand across the aisle from someone on any topic or different from them in some point of religion does not necessarily mean that they are our enemies. Reasonable people can disagree and choose to get along. Now, I've received plenty of criticism in my 42 years, um, and most of the criticism I've received was in written form, by the way. I, I keep drawing that out to you, because what I'd like us to understand is that, that often the, the criticism we receive will be in written form, uh, because most of the world, Christians and non-Christians, are very terrible at face-to-face -face confrontation. My nature is to deal with things head on, but God's word tells me uh, that a kind word turns away wrath. Now, I'm going to tell you that as I, I was reading through this, um, uh, I could almost hear, because uh, there's a good portion of this that I didn't feel like needed to change, because uh, it was literally uh, the words that Pastor Jonathan uh, wrote down and preached himself. But I thought about this, and, and I... I thought when I read this, I thought, you know what? I'm not sure that I always choose a kind word. I'm not sure that I can stand with Pastor Jonathan and say that I always first choose a kind word. But then I got to thinking about it. it like most of the time I'm disappointed with people is because I do give them, I term it different, I give them the benefit of the doubt. You have to probably work hard to prove to me that you're mad at me or prove to me that you don't like me because I'm not assuming anything until there's proof of it. I just simply look at the person face value that, hey, um, because most things aren't uh, monumental to me. Now, now my wife will tell you, she's sitting here and listening to this, I can make an awful big deal about a toy left in the driveway that I might run over. And it seems monumental by the way I react. But the, the truth about it is, is m most of that is approach to trying to teach our kids to take care of their things, and there's, there's backstories to all that or back lessons. But for the most part, I don't get bent too easy. And so I like to deal with things head on, and I try to use at least benefit of the doubt, I don't know if kind word approach is it, but most often when you take the kind word approach of dealing with, with uh, perceived attacks, you'll find out that the person who is uh, disproportionately upset about something was actually venting their frustrations on you for some other problem in their life. I've passed that word on advice in many scenarios on many topics about 
generally 90 times out of 100, when someone is upset about something, what they tell you they're upset about is usually not the base issue. That's usually whatever they feel comfortable with or they feel secure enough make it an issue about to get out their frustration. You know, if I blow up at the, at the kids about leaving a toy in the driveway, it's probably, if I blew up about it, it's probably not that there was one time out of the whole year that they left a toy in the driveway. It's probably the toy in the driveway. It's probably uh, the marble in the floor that catches my heel on the bone in the middle of the night. Or it's the, you know, it's those other things. It's all those other things that compile. And they weren't there to catch that. But they happen to be there right when I see the toy in the driveway. And then it hits. So, you know, they're thinking, wow, my dad really gets mad over a toy in the driveway. But really... It might be a whole succession of things because when I was a kid, my dad did things a certain way, right? Danny, I have this talk. You know, if my dad said, he's not here tonight, he, he couldn't make it tonight. But if my dad said not another word, you didn't breathe because breathing could be misconstrued as a word and punishment would immediately follow. In this day and time, we're talking about this. We don't know as dads in our generations, we're not sure what's gone awry exactly, but talking back is is far more rampant than I remember in my youth. Things that our kids these days will get away with. You might as well have gone ahead and planned their funeral when I was a kid, you know, because they were not going to survive that one. But the kind word approach, because maybe they're sick or their blood pressure medicine was off that week or, or uh, their home life or professional life was a wreck and something you said or did set them off. And most of the time when you bring a kind word of apology or reconciliation, you find that that person is not nearly as hot or upset as they had put on about. In fact, this has helped me a great deal in my relationships. I've dealt with things even of recently where someone may be lashing out at me, but I've walked life with them enough to know that they've got some terrible things going on that they're not seeing in their life. It's causing them stress. And I'm able to not take offense at them coming at me or take it personally because I know that they're, they've got so much in their life that's a struggle, right? I'm not being weak. I'm not letting them die with anything. I'm just simply saying that I realize this person, their life is not whole right now. In comparison to mine, I'm not saying I'm better. I'm just saying that I've, I've got my house maybe uh, somewhat a little more in order, and so I have more breathing room. And this person, their, their, their home life or their marriage or something is somewhat of a wreck, and so the way they respond is out of that hurt or out of that dysfunction. And so when we know that, we respond that way, they may not let up on their attack on us, but at least someone in their life is stable enough, is enough of a believer to bring some peace to their life. And it's really odd. Sometimes they lash out at the only person bringing peace to their life. It's like the mom who has stood by their, their child that's been addicted to drugs and, and, and given them a million chances. And they kick them out and give them a million chances more. And guess who really pays hard for that? That mom. Guess who gets disrespected or talked down to or stolen from, right? An example of the tone that I'm talking about or type of response you may want to use when someone is angry with you is like saying something like, I'm sorry that you're upset with me. I didn't realize that, uh, uh, that what I said would affect you in that way. Please forgive me. Is there something I can do to make it up to you? 
I've watched at the art form, I would say, of, of leaders I had at Walmart and in spiritual leaders where they're dealing with someone that maybe is very immature and they're lashing out with them, they're just being unreasonable. But I've watched the grace and how they handle that in just softly saying, I'm sorry that I've upset you. Let me try to understand what's going on. You know, you're like, wow, did they go to counseling college for that, you know? But I think what happens is you get in certain levels of responsibility as God allows you to get more and you start to find that there's no benefit in lashing back out because it puts you on that level playing field within to where basically it's just mudslinging, nothing's getting solved. And so you're able to rise above that and realize they've got some hurts and I'm just going to try to get the bottom of that and see if I can help them. But, but you're not letting it, letting it feel like an attack on yourself. Most of the time when you use those soft word approach, it may end up right there. It may just end there. That may diffuse it. Most of the time that will end right there. And that's good because you don't want a volatile person with a messed up life and a lot of misplaced aggression focusing their frustrations on you. Until you've been a few times since I've been doing a jail ministry and, and dealing with guys who've got addictions and uh, their personalities and things can flip at a hat depending if they're high or what they're going on. And I've been in this church alone before with someone where uh, even one guy that I really uh, know for a fact, I believe in my heart, is demons-possessed. And when, when he started changing his personality, you know, I may be a big guy, but I'm not a, beyond fear. And so you, want, you, you might almost always see that that soft word, that kind word approach will diffuse it. And you want to use that because you never know when who you're working with may be a ticking time bomb. And when you raise your voice, when you fire back at them, you may get the full brunt of everything that's been bottled up inside. Let them go find some other patsy to focus their venting on. They're not your enemy. The truth is they're their own worst enemy. In fact, the fact that they're responding to you that way, it's perpetual. That means that they respond to other people that way. And so they're constantly in these situations where um, it, they're having rough communication or, or rough relationships. And so, uh, you know, one minute someone's mature enough to handle it and they consider them a friend. Next minute there was someone on an equal playing field with them and they're just going at each other. So, so their relationships sometimes are volatile and they're their worst, own worst enemy. There will be folks that want to argue about what kind of motor oil you should use. And you'll be surprised how passionate they are about it. But they're not necessarily your enemy. We were talking about this recently with my dad and, um, and mom that, you know, when you have kids and you start to see them mimicking how you were at that age and you're the parent now, all of a sudden you start feeling really sorry for your parents sometimes, you know, and <laughs> they're not paying attention. And uh, so, but you do, you know, because I, I've always been a talker and people know that, but a 10-year-old with no restraint, you know, I see what my dad might have gone through. And you, you have to realize that just because you're dealing with a big person does not mean you're dealing with an adult mentally or socially. That you can't always assume that they've had the same experience as you or had the same type of home life or background or had the chance to mature in that same way. You've got to give people the benefit of the doubt that they may be uh, at a different place in their life, a different uh, time of maturity in their life or trying to mature uh, socially and, and uh, in, in their personality. And so you've got to be careful. I mean, like I said, some people will, will argue with you about the color of the sky just because that's the only thing they know how to do. 
in, this great, in the great political novel called Advise and Consent from the 1950s, there was a political character who would fall asleep on the floor during, uh, during the votes on the, on the um, political floor, and someone would wake him up, and he would always answer unalterably opposed. Unalterably opposed. And then his buddies would help him out by telling him when he actually needed to be in favor, favor of something. He was sleeping through the discussion and then just saying, I'm opposed. And there are some people who are just that way. They are, they are oppositional to everything, but they haven't singled you out as an enemy. They're just oppositional to most everything. And then there are some who have been chosen to be your personal enemy. This is a, a shock to those who make no enemies. They can't seem to understand how someone uh, would hate them. And I, my wife doesn't like when I talk about her, but one of the things I love about her when I met her is she had no enemies that I could ever see that she ever had. Her personality just didn't draw them. Now, after she had to be put in pl- places of ministry where you have to step into some sticky situations, you know, I've watched her grow and the Lord uh, work through her, but there's still that astonishment of how can people get mad at you over this? How can they make such a big deal over this? How can they treat you this way over this? And so those who are not used to having enemies, it's a shock when they run into someone like this that just is set on having enemies. So when, when you refer to your enemies, you may not be their enemies, but they have chosen to make themselves your enemy. The second thing, these enemies fall into two general categories. The first one are they, they perceive you to be a threat to them, their popularity, their profession, or their relationships. You're a threat in some way. They're jealous of you or they feel that you're uh, their primary competitor in money, love, or power. And envy is a powerful and reprehensible motivator. In fact, envy is a core character attribute of the Antichrist. And I got to tell you something. I've just been, for my own education, I I do some weird things uh, looking into other churches and stuff. Just to kind of see what's going on in our area. And so one day I decided I was going to look at all the reviews on Facebook of churches, as many as I could find, and read what people were writing about either their own church or the ones they're visiting. And what caught my attention not so much was the visitors, because some people you can't make them happy, you know, and I know that, and I, I didn't think, ooh, that church must be terrible, you know, because <laughs> of what that person said. But it was more what the people that go to the church would say is, like, our church is the best church ever. Our church is this, or our church is that, or no, no. Hey, I, I saw somebody get nudged. Now listen, <laughs> there are some people that in this church will say, "I love my church," and that's not what I'm talking about. You can love your church. I'm talking about that. When you think about those words, my church is the best church in Northwest Arkansas. Just think about that for a minute. Now, the person outside the church, what does that say to them? That's the best church? No. It's, it says to them that those people believe that no other church in the area equals them and that there can't be anything as good going on in those other churches than in ours. And I thought about that for a minute. I thought, I wonder how pharisaical they realize that that, I wonder if they realize that sounds very pharisaical. And from my time at Walmart, all I learned that a lot of times, not always, you can't always reflect on the leadership what people are saying about a place. You might have run into the one or two immature people who don't know how to express their feelings towards what they belong to correctly, but I want us to be careful that we realize that we're part of the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of New Song, 
not the kingdom of the assemblies of God, but the kingdom of God. And that there are a lot of wonderful things going on in all, a lot of churches around here. Yes, have there been some terrible things I've heard of happening in churches? Yes. I've heard of leadership, doing immoral things. I've heard of a lot of things. I don't go looking for it, but you know, we have a lot of visitors that come from those places when it's happened, and they say, woo, if you only knew what I went through, you know? But the point is this. That type of mentality, and I'm not calling them the Antichrist, but envy is a core characteristic attribute of the Antichrist. And listen, pastor's not beyond it. I've been in, I've been in uh, different uh, settings with different ministers, young ministers especially, or the worst about it, but you get around and you start comparing notes about all the, how great your church is. Now, you're not saying that, but you know, you're comparing notes, and then you feel that little bit of competition. And I always hate that. It feels icky. That's the word I always think. I feel icky, you know, get around that, because I'm thinking, you know, I don't mind saying great things about my church, but I don't like trying to one-up the next pastor, because my hope is every church is doing their part, because we can't do it all ourselves. So they perceive some kind of threat to you. There's envy. There's some kind of jealousy. The second category, general category, is they feel they have received a wound from you. Now listen to how I put that. They feel, they feel they have received a wound from you. That's all perception. Can it be true that you wounded them? Yes. Can it also be perception that they, you wounded them? Yes. Well, pastor, it's my feelings. If they're hurt, who's to say what should hurt my feelings or not? Well, because if you take that approach, you can't grow. Because if, if my wife does something, I say she wounds me, but then she shows me how I'm being immature about my, my feelings and my expectations, then I may need to say, I'm sorry, you're right. That's kind of childish of me to put those kind of expectations on you. And so I shouldn't feel hurt. I just should put my big boy pants on and moved on. So they feel like they've got some kind of wound from you. A primary, primary motive here, though, becomes revenge. And when revenge is a motive and a desire for revenge, it's not easily erased. It's not easily removed. Once revenge is in the heart, it gets nasty. I, I've, I've received some of this even within this year that personally, when someone feels they've been wrong to you and they decide revenge is the way. Thing is, I've gotten the point, I can take a lot towards me. But you start messing with the church and something else comes out of me. <laughs> if I feel like the person's wrong and they're going to do damage to the testimony of the church and to the community, then that's a different story. Remember back in school, did you ever move and switch schools and find a person who hated you and singled you out as an enemy? I mean, it seems like no reason. Moved here when I was halfway through sixth grade. I went to Westside uh, elementary in Rogers and my parents pastored at Rogers First Assembly and it was probably about four city blocks walk home and there's these two twin boys who are meaner than fire and they decided they were going to pick on me and they were waiting every chance they could just to try to pick a fight and I avoided for a long time but they caught me of all places in the churchyard with nobody watching in our own churchyard and they got they got some of their grandma's brooches I guess you call them a long stick pin thing and had them in their hands and just started just wailing on me. And I was feeling that, those, that needle just going in and in and in. And all of a sudden, like the Calvary, I heard this voice holler out, a boy about twice my size, my same age though, who later became one of the football captains in, in uh, junior high, came up, and I mean, those boys went flying. 
His name was Johnny Stevens. And Johnny Stevens came to rescue, and we were immediate friends. Let me tell you something. I was on Johnny. I was right by Johnny at school from then on. Um, but, you know, I also had this boy named Craig that, for whatever reason, would stand in line for lunch or stand over, and he'd make sure he's behind me. He'd sit there and hit me in the kidney. Just boom, boom. Until I started having some complications. My mom had to go to school and say, what's up with this boy beating on my son? Yeah, I wasn't always tall and big. I was scrawny and, and got picked on a little bit. Or he'd get me in the bathroom and grab my shirt and start hitting me in the face and my glasses would fall. I couldn't see and he'd just swing me around a circle and hit me. So we've, we've been in these situations. I'm sure all of us have been picked on. Maybe, maybe somebody's sitting here feeling um, convicted because you're the bully. <laughs> but we've probably been in a situation at some point where someone's just determined we're going to be their enemy and we don't know why. So then we come to how do we treat our enemies? How are we going to treat our enemies? Because, listen, do you have, truthfully, answer in your heart, do you have the desire to reflect Christ? We have to stop here before we go on because we've got to settle a couple things. Do you truly have a desire to reflect Christ? We're not going to the point about excuses about why we can't, okay, or why we struggle. Just can you honestly say, I have this burning desire to reflect Christ? to unbelievers because we can't go any further until we get that settled so if your answer is yes then this is going to be helpful deal with every person prayerfully if you make it a matter of prayer listen i didn't always do this but jen and i lean on prayer heavily things start to go wrong and we're locked on praying i mean we we prayed and literally we prayed something and been praying for something to happen, and all of a sudden text come through, or email, or a call, and be like, wham, there it is. I mean, talking about charging you up, when you just praying it down, and then wham, uh, the spiritual warfare is on, and God's breaking on barriers. Martin Luther said, I have so much to do today, and so many enemies surrounding me, that I must spend five hours a day in prayer. But listen, the flesh in us wants to say this, I have so much to do today and so many enemies that I don't have time to pray. God's way is just the opposite of that. I would agree that God's way is Martin Luther's way, that because of our struggles, because of how many enemies we sometimes amass, we have to spend a lot of time in prayer. Pray yourself through forgiveness. Pray in spiritual warfare and thwart the enemy's efforts. Seek wisdom from God and, and, and an avenue of peace. So pray for peace. Now, this passage is about dealing with enemies. It's been used by some to bring guilt and shame on the weak Christians. Those that are young in their faith. These, these, en these enemies want to manipulate and dominate, so they, they do just like their father, the devil, and they quote from this passage to shame a Christian into being bullied. And this wasn't Jesus' intention. Some of you are going to feel really good because you might have felt like your toes are getting stepped on, and I'm going to come to your aid a little bit here and tell you that Jesus is not wanting us to be pushovers. This has been misunderstood, it's been twisted, it's been used to make Christians feel like we've got to be weak, to be meek. Jesus was speaking to a people who were in the, the chains of the Old Testament law. Everything was about the rules and not the heart. It was about doing things as a task list for God, not doing it out of relationship with God. And so he's trying to free them from their pharisaical rules and not give them new rules. He wasn't wanting to just bring new rules. I've come, in, I've come to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. 
What's he saying in that? It should be really clear now. I've come to show you what the law was meant to do in your life, in your heart, not, not to take it away or to give you new rules. He's trying to free them. And this passage is about the, the spirit of dealing with the enemies. So when we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 45, it says, You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants you to, to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go on one mile, go on two miles with him. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away for the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And I love this, but I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, Jesus was talking about a different way of living, not, not scripting new laws. You see, the church had it down pat at that time and spiritual leaders on how to tell people what was wrong with them. They were experts. They were professionals at telling people what's wrong with you. They had a list of rules, and when you were a rule breaker, we, we've got the power, the authority, the position, and do it in the name of God, and we will clearly tell you how wrong you are. It's not our job to help you fix it. It's just to tell you where you did wrong. You've got to go make your sacrifices to God and worry about that yourself. He says to us, look, you're not fragile, too fragile to handle awesome, the awesome weight of vengeance. And this is why God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And I'm sorry, I misstated that. You are too fragile to handle vengeance. It's not that vengeance is evil. And here's another misconception. Vengeance is not bad. Did you know that? Oh, now pastor's going to tell us, now we can go beat on people. No, it's not evil. God brings vengeance. Vengeance is for the divine. The problem is the reason we're supposed to stay away from vengeance ourselves is because we're still in the sinful world, in this broken nature of ours. And vengeance is such a divine thing that it can only be carried out by a divine being. And until we're in our perfected bodies, that's why we will meet Jesus in there. That's why when Jesus comes back and Satan is finally done in that final battle, it's got to happen after, after the saints are taken up. 1 Peter 2.23 says, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges, judges justly. See, Jesus lived this example for us. He, uh, we must pray our way into forgiving and redemptive spirit, and we must pray to stay there. I know it's difficult when you pray for your enemy and they continue to be your enemy, but if they continue to be your enemy, you must continue to pray. And in that prayerful, uh, prayerful time, yourself, you, you need to pull yourself from the clutches or allow the Lord to pull yourself from the clutches of that same vengeful, wrathful spirit that dwells in your enemy. That's how they became your enemy. Have you thought about that? If you return in favor, vengeance, then you have entrapped yourself in the very thing that is causing them to behave as your enemy. The thing that the enemy puts in them 
that pride, that envy, that feeling that you've hurt them, you've now taken on the wounded nature. You've now said, I'm the wounded. I'm equal to you, and I'm going to turn back vengeance to try to put myself above that and get victory over you. But that's not how it works in God's way of doing things. We've instead surrendered ourselves to the enemy and let him turn turn us into that same uh, type of spirit that gets hurt and feels envious. The second, second thing about this, about knowing how to treat our enemies, is if, if I'm to treat them prayerfully, then I must rise above them and take the highest road. If you go down in the mud and wrestle with a pig, you'll always get as dirty as a pig, and the pig likes it. A pig is not at all uncomfortable in the mud, and the enemy is better at wrath and vengefulness and sin than you are as a Christian. That's one area where the enemy will win every time. If you try to play his game, he'll beat you every time. If you try to play against unbelievers in this because of Satan's craftiness in there, you'll lose every time. You have to do things God's way to be victorious. And so you don't want to get down with the pigs. Now, nobody get on Facebook and say, Pastor called all unbelievers pigs. That's not what I'm saying. I'm calling the devil a pig. When Ashcroft was being confirmed as attorney general, they were coming after him for a phone interview he did with a magazine that the senators said was a white supremacist racial publication. Brother Ashcroft said he was unaware of the publication, but that it was possible that he had done a phone interview as every one of the senators surely have done as well. They wanted him to condemn this publication. Ashcroft spoke briefly about the evil of racism. Then the senators came back again and wanted him to denounce the publication specifically. They weren't giving up. Ashcroft responded that he didn't know anything about the publication and wouldn't feel comfortable putting something down that he didn't know anything about. But they were relentless. They were going to keep going. So the senator said, wouldn't you rather be safe and condemn, be, rather be safe than condemn them just in case? Ashcroft responded that his father had taught him in his childhood that it is preferable to be the one who gets your wallet stolen than to be the one who steals a wallet. He's saying that it may, it may seem like the robber is in the better position and gets the better uh, of the exchange, but it's better by far to be the victim than the criminal. In matters of vengeance, it's the same way. It does not feel good to be wronged, but it's better by far to be wrong than to be the one doing the wrong. And so the word, world says, fight fire with fire, but that's not a biblical proverb. I've heard that quoted like it's a biblical text. Oh, the Bible says fight fire with fire, brother. No. In fact, they say, Bible says eye for an eye. But they didn't read the text, did they? It says, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But then he goes on to say, but I say the opposite, right? It's better for you to speak well of your enemy while they are abusing you than for you to speak evil of them while they are abusing you. Was Jesus crazy or was his way so different from our flesh that he just seems that way to a fleshly turned mind? Here's the thing. This is the difficulty I run into in my own spiritual walk all the time. 
is I want to read the Scripture to exonerate myself. My sinful nature wants me to read it where it makes things easier on me. When I run into something where it makes it hard, I want to question, is that really what it's saying? And that's what the unbeliever does too. It's a protection mechanism. We read the Bible and we're like, he can't truly mean this. Jesus can't really mean it that way. We're seeing that right now on the whole, uh, I mean, you pick topics. You can pick on uh, uh, homosexual marriage and all that. Jesus never said in the New Testament that you couldn't be gay. Well, they're trying to take a little quip and say Jesus never said it, although the Holy Scriptures that says all of it is good for teaching correcting, it was said. But they're trying to, they're trying to pull something out and twist it, and that's what we do as believers too if we're not careful. David avoided Saul when he could have killed him. And Christians shouldn't love to fight. There are fights that must be fought. And we're going to get into this here in a second. And you're going to see that, that again, I'm going to reiterate the fact that we aren't supposed to be pushovers. But there are fights that must be fought. And peace can be found on either side of war that cannot be found otherwise. But Jesus' teachings lead us away from fighting and towards peace. A spirit of gentleness should be present in Christians. A great, a great truth that I struggle with myself is this. Sometimes in the kingdom of God, it's better to be kind than be right. It's better to be kind than right. Now, don't confuse that with me saying it's better for you to give, um, to give up on biblical truth and say, well, I'll fudge a little here so that I don't cause a fight. No, I'm just talking about when we get in an argument or we get in a point where we think we have to be right, sometimes it's better to be kind than be right. The point... The point here is treat your enemies prayerfully. That was the first one. Second one, rise above their actions. And now that we've said that, point three, be wise as serpents. Be wise as serpents. We have had a problem, especially in the Pentecostal faith uh, in the past, of being perceived as idiots sometimes because we behave that way. Because we say things like, I, I don't need to know anything about that. All I know is the Bible. Like we have this thing that we have a right to exclude knowledge of any kind outside of the Scripture. And there's been some churches say you shouldn't read other books, you shouldn't try to learn anything else, everything you need to know is in the Bible. But you look at Paul and you look at some of the disciples and they were very learned, some of them were very learned men. Jesus many times took uh, teachings that were not... Um, well, for instance, I mentioned this before, the prodigal son that we call it, the story of two brothers. Jesus didn't make up that parable. He took and twisted one that had been taught forever. Because in the real story that preceded him telling it, the father had the son killed for his disobedience. And it was a story to teach kids not to disobey their father and not to disobey God. And Jesus turned around. And so we also think he's only talking to a bunch of sinners sitting there. But the Pharisees were there. He had two points to make. There's two brothers. The last one was mad outside the party because the younger brother came home and now he's an heir all over again and he already got a portion. Now he's getting another portion. And the brother had never done anything wrong, right? The Bible says he hadn't. He'd always stayed there for father. The point was his heart was wrong. His motives were wrong. He was only doing what was right to get the father's stuff, not out of love for the father. And sometimes we're trying so hard to be right, we're doing it for the wrong reasons. Our motives are wrong. We're doing it to be labeled as the Father's, to be seen as His. 
But our motives aren't because we love him and we want to do what he tells us because we know he wants the best for us. We have to be careful that we're not doing this whole thing of coming to church and saying we're a Christian and doing all this for the wrong motives. We have to constantly examine our hearts because our hearts want to pull us that direction because the evil one is trying to move our hearts all the time. I grew up in church. There's, I've said it again. There's probably not much you can say to surprise me about anything that's happened in church. That which I didn't think was possible happened in church. My dad has now told me stories about churches he's pastored before we came to Arkansas that I just now I know anything is possible to happen in church. Good, bad, ugly, and different. But one thing I've said over and over again if you have the wrong motives, aren't you tired? Aren't you worn out? Aren't you weary of doing it without knowing why you're doing it? When you get the right motives in your heart for serving the Lord and following what he wants you to do, it's alive, it's vibrant, and every day is a journey. Every day is an experience. David avoided Saul when he could have killed him. but we're supposed to be wise as serpents. Matthew 10, 16 says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Forgiving your enemy does not mean being a pushover who allows them to, to take advantage of you. David didn't kill Saul when he had the chance, but he also didn't just sit and, at the dinner table and let Saul run him through with a javelin. Listen, I have had times in, in the past, especially within the first couple of years of me pastoring, where someone in the church, I had to talk to them about the way they handled something. And there's somebody outside the church, and look, I saw how terrible that person was acting, but, but they're an unbeliever. And I can't, I can't do anything. And I, and I want to, in my flesh, say, be protective of, of uh, my flock and say, well, you're, just, you're a sinner, and, and you've got problems. And you need to get your life right. You know, and I want to, you know, in my flesh I want to say that, but I realize that these texts are dealing with the children of God, not with the world outside of that. Since the time of David and Saul, there's been a tribal warfare. Two of the main characters were Joab and Abner. Joab is David's nephew and a great general, and Joab has some younger brothers and is one of them, uh, one of them pursues uh, Abner to kill him. And Abner doesn't want to kill the boy, and he runs, but the boy follows him. And Abner calls back twice. He says, turn back. I don't want to have to kill you. Now, I've got my older brother in the room, and I can remember vividly some pictures of me running through the yard as he's running. And one of the things he loved to do is pick up pine cones because he whizzed those things like missiles. And I can hear him going past my ear. I mean, listen, I had battle time. I had battlefield time before I even turned 10 because... You know, having a brother that's much bigger than you. But he would come to my defense, too. I could tell you stories about neighborhood kids picking on me, and it was great to have an older brother. But, but, <clears throat> but here he's saying, I don't want to have to kill you. And I've been in that situation before where it's like, just leave me alone. I don't want to have to hurt you, you know? Any last-ditch effort to, to get the situation over with, right? But the boy in his youthful zeal wants to make his name, and Abner turns, and he doesn't even use the spear end, but the butt end, and the boy is impaled anyway. And from that day, Joab hated Abner and considered him an enemy. Now in those days, they had cities called cities of refuge, and Hebron was one of them. And we mentioned Hebron a few times in, in some previous messages, but no one, had, uh, no one who had a blood feud 
They wanted blood for revenge with you could come into the city of refuge and kill you. It was a safe haven. As long as you stayed in one of the seven cities of refuge, you were safe. Now, when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 27 through 34, it says, Now when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the gateway as though to speak with him privately. Joab said, Hey, come over here. i got to talk to you a minute. He's at the gates of the city of refuge, right? Could have stayed in, but he said, Hey, come here. I want to talk to you. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother, Ashel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. Verse 28, Later when David heard about this, he said, I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. May his blood fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. May Joab's house never be without someone who has a running sore or leprosy or who leans on a crutch or who falls by the sword or who lacks food. I'm sorry I'm kind of chuckling a little bit because when you think about this prayer, I mean, talking about, you know, I'm not so sure he, he had the whole scriptures here to know we, you're supposed to pray for your enemies in a different way. But he's heaping the coals one way or another. Um, hey, running sores, leprosy, anything you want to give them, heap it on. Uh, and then verse 30, Joab and his brother Amishai murdered Abner because he had killed their brother Ashel in the battle of Gibeon. Then David said to Joab and all the people with him, tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and walk in mourning in front of Abner. King David himself walked behind there and they buried Abner in Hebron and the king wept aloud at Abner's tomb. All the people wept also. The king sang his lament for Abner. Should Abner have died as the lawless die? Your hands were not, were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. You fell as one who falls before wicked men. All the people wept over him again. So here's the teaching. Just because we forgive in our enemies doesn't mean we have to go to be abused. David told Abner to go and stay to Hebron. So, so let me just make this really clear for you. When you go with a heartfelt apology to your enemy and they just want to keep abusing you, you're done. Jesus isn't telling you keep throwing your cheek out there to get tagged again. He's saying once you turn the cheek and said, hey, you know, and I've seen this happen, you know. Uh, you're trying to get two people to come together and one of them you get them and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, let's just let go and think it's all good and the other one has a jab again. I'm like, I'm done. You had your chance to have peace and now you've, you've, you've taken another shot. David told Abner to go and stay at Hebron. And Job came under the guise of friendship and had a knife hidden in his robe. And so the story is don't expose yourself unnecessarily to attack. There are people who will give advice to abuse people to forgive their abuser and move back home. The wife is being abused by a husband. You just need to forgive him and let the Lord work it out. Go home. Hogwash. They're walking around with their eyes blacked, and blacked in and and they keep forgiving them, and the abuser keeps beating them up. Yes, forgive the, the, your abuser, and then get a restraining order and some really big friends. Forgive them and forget them. Christianity is not for suckers. It's, not for, it's for peace lovers, but not suckers. But sometimes peace is brought at a sacrificial price. Staying in a home where your children are abused and, and, and treated badly and scarring their lives 
is not a Christian thing. It's a reckless, dangerous, catastrophic, and irresponsible thing. You should leave and flee with those children. Forgive them, yes. And hopefully the child one day can, but for their own good. But flee. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I sent forth sent you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Abner died as a fool. That's what David was saying. He said he didn't die like a warrior. He didn't die in a proper manner. He died as a fool. He went out and threw himself in front of his enemy one more time when it should have been resolved. He was at a safe refuge. He had tried. He said, hey, I don't want to have to, you know, he had ran from, from the brother. I don't want to have to hurt you. I don't want to have to kill you. And he wouldn't quit. And then the brother's like, now I'm going to take you out. He just can't win. He's like, I'm trying not to fight here. And he goes to the city of refuge, but he goes out one more time. And if he'd stayed in Hebron where the king and society and God had given him protection, he would have been fine. But he came out to his enemy because of a lie, that makes, and that makes Abner foolish. You don't have to allow yourself to be in harm's way to be a Christian. God doesn't call everyone to be a martyr. There is a time to allow yourself to be harmed for your testimony, and there is a time for direction and wisdom to protect you. Another thought in this point is warning not to obsess about your enemies. Don't let these people dominate your thoughts and prayer life long term. The righteous shall live by faith. They gradually become objects of your attention. And if you hate your father for being an abuser, you'll probably be like him. If you can't forgive him and forget it and go on, ask the Holy Spirit to help you work through that. Christian counseling if you need it. But if you keep that hate, you'll end up being like him. In fact, you're much more likely to marry an abuser if you grew up with an abuser and you haven't dealt with that properly or biblically. We can't live in paranoid fear, but, uh, but forgive and move on. Now, how do you treat enemies of your friends? This is a little bit more tricky, right? What about those who haven't done you wrong, but they're, they're really trying to slay one of your friends and you're feeling protective? Well, it's better to be a loyal friend who in the long run turns out to be untrustworthy than to be suspicious and distance yourself from them and be disloyal yourself. It goes back to giving them the benefit of the doubt. You don't, it shouldn't be, and we talked about that in another message, not being suspicious in your friendships. It's not healthy. You don't have to persecute the enemies of your friends, but you don't, you don't have to fraternize with them either. Let me tell you something. If you surround yourself by divisive people, you're going to pay dearly you're going to pay dearly because that will eventually filter into your home and your life. The scripture tells us that if someone is set on being divisive, we're to have nothing to do with them. And you have to be very careful because if that's who... Now listen, if someone walks away from Christ, I try to pursue them. I had this talk with somebody, I think, several months ago. Or I can't remember when it was. We're talking about, it, you know, where do you pursue people because they're, they're falling away and where do you hold back? Well, it's on that one topic. Are they a divisive person? In other words, are they, con- are they content and set on stirring up strife? And if they are, and you're making them your bosom buddy, or you're buddy up thinking you're helping them, you're actually going against Scripture, and you're, causing, you're, you're probably going to cause division in your own family eventually. At the very least, you will in the body of Christ, and it's going to continue to cause problems in your life. It's going to hurt friendships. It's going to cause division everywhere you go, because that divisive person, it spreads like wildfire. That's going to filter over another area of your life. 
It's difficult. There are very few people in my life where right now I have to say I cannot have anything to do with them. But I have a few. It was tough. It was through a lot of prayer. It was through personal anguish. It was sleepless nights, missing some meals, which doesn't look like I have, but I have. For spiritual reasons, I do. <laughs> but listen, I, I can't tell you from my heart any more that will help you than to get this one thing right whether it's this church or any other church, do not surround yourself by divisive people. You will, you will pay the price. God will protect the church. He will protect those who are doing, it, doing what he's asked them to do and carrying on with it. But those who are warring against them, God will protect it. You don't want to side on the side that God's getting ready to correct because you'll get in on the correction. And I've been there. I've sided on the wrong side once or twice in my life. And listen, it's a bunch of humble pie to be getting correction because you jumped in there yourself, free will, and you didn't even cause a mess. So you've got to be careful. But how do you treat enemies of your friends? You have to be careful if those, you know, you don't have to persecute the enemies of your friends, but you don't have to fraternize with them. And take note of those who declare themselves to be enemies of anyone, uh, friend or foe, because the next year they may turn their attentions to you. If they're willing to defame, libel, and falsely accuse anyone, they will not spare you if you cross them. You'll be on their hit list next. So pre proceed with caution with these folks. Now in closing, I want to uh, just draw your attention to a couple more things. All enemies are like their father. Satan has declared himself as our enemy because he is envious of us and feels wounded by all children of God. We, are, we have the opportunity before us and some of us are able to live out what he has permanently separated himself from. And that is where the evil and a lot of the, the, the lashing out that Satan brings is because of that horrible fact that he is eternally separated from God. 1 Peter 5, 7-10 says, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know what your, brother, your brothers throughout the world are undergoing, this, the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. We live by faith. Faith is balanced with real and sober assessment of the threat of the enemy. Resisting the enemy is an act of process. God uses our enemies to grow, uh, grow our character. And ultimately, victory over our enemies is assured on earth for, for eternity as, as God wills it. If we look at Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 through 18, it says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. 
Verse 16, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which are the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayer and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. We must be shielded by the armor of God that's provided. If we leave his protection, if we don't take heed to these words and we don't realize that this is here for our protection and we venture off and do things our own way, Satan will get a hold on that and he'll turn it into his way and bring destruction. If we respond to spiritual battles with physical responses, then we fail. You can't defeat the devil with fists. You know, I know, especially us guys, we want to think that we can physically take him on. But it's a spiritual fight. If the enemy comes after my family, I'll go to spiritual warfare. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And in Matthew chapter 5, this teaching will help us deal with our enemies. And listen, as time goes on, this is going to be more and more vital. You can't get on social media. You can't watch the news. You can't get out in society around those who, who have made themselves enemy of God and not have to take a look at the scripture and say, how do I deal with this? You either have to resign to the fact I'm just going to do it my own way and take my chances or I need to know what the word of God says. And tonight we've seen that, listen, we don't have to be pansies. My word for it. God didn't ask us to be pansies as Christians. He asked us to try to deal with people and our enemies in his way. And why is that? Because only Satan and his demons are permanent enemies. Those who have made themselves our enemies, they still is hope. They, come, they could come to a salvation knowledge of Jesus Christ. Even those that are divisive and we say we have nothing more to do with them. That's the key God's trying to use to turn them back around. Because listen, think about it. When all their solid Christians who they've just set on being, being that way, they're going to be divisive. When they say, I can't have anything to do with you and now they're alone with all the devil's friends. You know, they're going to remember what it was like to wake up with a peace in the heart knowing they're going to be around the children of God and be around worship. Maybe before they took it lightly and they didn't really enter into worship. Maybe they didn't really dig into the word of God and, and all of a sudden they realized, hey, this is what it's like when you're totally separated from God. And I don't want that. And it's really hard for us to think this, but sometimes we're helping Satan more than we think by continuing to pursue people who are dead set on being an enemy of God. We're not letting it take the course that God's given us to take. And then sometimes, because we want to try to duke it out physically or, or with words or, and not take the soft word approach or take the biblical approach, we're driving them away as well. And this is going to be a key for many of us to see if we want to see unbelievers come to know him, chances are some of the best ones you can reach are the ones who are acting that way to you, but you're able to show them Jesus through the way you respond to them. I'm like, wow, maybe there are true Christ followers, and maybe that means Jesus really is alive and can make my life, change my life just the same. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to be in your word and to worship tonight. Lord, I thank you for our opportunity this Sunday to, to reach out to our community and, Lord, to let them see you shine through us. Lord, I pray for uh, Brother Gladi as he comes to help prepare us for this event, that, God, that you will 
uh, give him safe travel. Lord, you'll provide for him as well. And Lord, uh, help us to bless him. Lord, I just pray that uh, no matter how many people respond to Sunday, no matter how many are there, that Lord, whether we see souls saved that day or not, Lord, that the seeds would be buried deep. Lord, that begin to produce fruit. And Lord, we'd be able to reap a harvest of souls for the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.